Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Hey, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about the promise of living hope. And it's so meaty and so weighty that uh, I asked Tyler Ogletree if he would team preach with me this morning. Now, does anybody remember the old days of wrestling? I mean, the old days. I'm going way back. Freddie Blassie, Bobo Brazil, Andre the Giant. Anybody remember those guys? Yeah. We used to watch them on KTLA when I grew up in Burbank near Los Angeles. KTLA, Channel 5. And my dad, who was a boxing aficionado, he loved boxing. He actually was a boxer in Frankfurt, Germany. And whenever boxing was on, he would, he would get in the stance and do the moves and stuff. But we would chuckle. We would belly laugh when we watched these guys wrestle. And we knew it was, excuse me, we knew it was fake. And every once in a while, they would zoom in as somebody would hit the mat and pretend to hit the other guy, and you'd see a miss. And they'd go to the ropes in the corner, and they would tag team the next guy, and the next guy would jump in as they jumped out. So in a moment... I'm going to tag team and let Tyler help me with the message. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about Tyler. This is where I get to brag about you publicly. Uh, Tyler grew up in this church. And uh, some of you remember that when he's a little guy. Anybody remember? Tyler, little guy? Yeah. And uh, he was beardless back then in the third grade, the fourth grade. And as many of you know, Tyler's now on our staff full time. He oversees our youth ministry that meets on Tuesday night. If you have a young person between ages of uh, 7th grade to 12th grade, you need to get them here. If you have grandkids that age, or if you have neighbors that are raising havoc in your neighborhood, grab their lower earlobe and get them down here. Because what's happening here on Tuesdays is incredible. Uh, We call it Ascend, and uh, that's on Tuesdays. On Thursday nights, we have the Collective. That's our young adult group. 18 to 29. Tyler oversees that as well. Tyler also oversees our small group ministry with the help of Destiny, who is just here, who's 22, by the way. And and Tyler is on the campuses of our schools, our public schools. It's so great. He goes to the Bible Believers Club. He uh, is at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And they love Tyler for two reasons. He's an excellent connector with young people, and an excellent speaker. But he also brings pizza. And what teenager doesn't like (laughs) pizza on their school campus? And last but not least, he's a graduate of New Hope Christian College, a college I was just bragging about up in Eugene, Oregon, where Dr. Wayne Cordero is the president. So he got to be a part of that college life there and travel with the team. And they all said, Tyler, Larry Powers, Uh, Professor Larry Powers and Gary Matzdorf, he knows these names. They're all bragging about Tyler. And I was bragging too. I said, and he's on my staff. (laughs) And one guy said, hey, we're looking for, no, keep away, keep away. Yeah. Hey, so in this series, we've been using this verse as we start every week, 2 Peter 1, 4. And would you read it with your best? We're going to hear a tag team sermon kind of voice. God made great and marvelous promises so that his nature would become part of us. Then we could escape our evil desires and the corrupt influences of this world. 
Yeah, see, when we come to Christ, positionally, we're made righteous. Isn't that good? But experientially, you and I know it's another story. we got a long way to go. You want to grow deeper in your faith? You want the nature of God to be more a part of your life? Then you need to study and understand the great and marvelous promises so that his nature, notice, would become part of us. Then we could escape our evil desires and corrupt influences of this world. Write this down. We've been writing it down every week, but it bears repeating. Through the promises of God, we see the heart of God, and its nature becomes part of us. And then by seeing the heart of God, we have, we have hope. Yeah, we get to know his heart. And instead of saying, God, what's going on in my life? Oh, let me recalibrate my heart to come under your hope and to come under your promises. It is said that we can live without food between 40 and 60 days, depending on how your body is, is made up. That we can live without water some three to six days, again, depending on how your body is made up. We can live about eight to 10 minutes without air. Uh, some of you need air sooner than that, obviously, yeah. But you can't last a day without hope. Because then your life just starts marking time. You're merely existing, not living in the power and the presence of God. Real hope is connected to a real God from whom we can expect real and great things to take place. And so as we dive into the message, and before Tyler comes, let me read a prayer to you from Romans 15, 13. This is our prayer together uh, in this message today. May God the source of hope, fill you, all of you, with joy and peace through your faith in him. Then you will overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We should be overflowing with hope. I mean, when we, we, we deal with people in our community or out at Vandenberg Air Force Base, we should be known as the people of hope, not the people of nope. 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 It's never going to happen. You know, you shouldn't be an Eeyore, you should be a person filled with hope. So if you're a downer, uh, you know, a Donna Downer or a Donald Downer, just get over it and guess where you go? You go to the source of hope, that's the Lord, and let his Holy Spirit overflow you so that you can overflow with hope. Amen? Well, here's Tyler. Welcome Tyler as he comes. Tag team, buddy. Tag team. No, knuckleball. No, <laughs> Anytime I hear wrestling, I think of Nacho Libre. I'm a youth pastor, so best wrestling movie ever. I think it's a documentary about a friar that wants to become a wrestler, but that's beside the topic. Not at all what I'm talking about today. Um, I have the joy and privilege of being on staff here at LFC, as Pastor Bernie said. I serve with the youth, young adults, and the small groups. I've been on staff uh, just shy of about a year and a half, but again, as he said, I've really been here, I would say, at least consistently every week for about the past 14 years. Uh, I love this church, and it is with a great joy and pleasure that I stand up here today, a place that I never thought I would be. Uh, even if you were to tell me two weeks ago that I'd be standing here, I would have laughed at you. But here I am. So... We're going to dive in today. We are talking about hope. What I want to do to start off this morning is I want to do something a little different. There's not going to be a slide on the screen. If you have a Bible, I would ask that you close it. If you look at your phone, I'm surrounded by youth, so they always have their Bible apps on their phone. Um, so I just ask that you put that away as well. What I want to do is I want to start by reading a psalm, uh, and I'm going to read this psalm, and I just want you to hear what this psalmist is going through as he wrote it. Because this is going to paint the picture and be the road that we walk down 
is all based off of this psalm. This comes from Psalm 42. Many people will probably recognize at least a stanza, but I want you to listen to what this psalmist is experiencing. He says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and song of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfall. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Everyone experiences hope, right? When we talk about hope, we automatically go to a time in our life or an experience or a certain circumstance or situation, and we recognize that hope right away. We immediately know what it means to hope in something. But it's also funny because there's this flip side to hope. There's, there's the antithesis of hope. I think that's the right word. There's this thing called despair. Now, despair is the same thing. Both of these words, it's a level playing field. Everyone experiences this thing. Hope and despair are not racist. They're not sexist. They don't care how old you are. They don't care how much money you bring in or how little money you bring in. They don't care what kind of car you drive. Hope and despair finds every single one of us. For those of you who know, I used to work at a body shop. Um, I started off as a kid. It was a family business. I would sweep floors, mop the shop, uh, just do whatever the guys told me to do. I would just do it. Uh, and it slowly kind of got to where I'd work on the cars. I started managing it. And before my dad sold it, um, I was actually managing the whole shop for him. Uh, I love cars. As a young kid, I can remember riding motorcycles and cars, working on them in the garage with my dad. The second I began to do it for a living, cars were the worst thing ever. I absolutely <laughs> hated cars. I wanted nothing to do with it. Like, I got one project car, and within two weeks, I was like, I'm done. Sell it. Like, I don't even want to look at this thing. Um, so I've been on staff now for about a year and a half, as I mentioned, and about six months into it, uh, I looked at my wife, um, and I was like, babe, I think it's time for a project car. And anyone who works on cars and is married knows the look that you get when you say that. Uh, you get a look of complete confusion. You get a look of frustration. You get a look of like, you know how much a project, like a project car um, the garage is too small. When I got mine, uh, I had to actually take the mirrors off because I was, I was backing it into my tiny garage. One of the mirrors just actually got ripped off because it won't fit in. That's how small my garage is. 
Um, so if you want to go ahead and throw that picture up there, is that Dulon up there? Oh, it's Tyler. What's up, T2? This is my truck. This is a 1963 Chevy C10. It's a bit of a Frankenstein piece together. I love this truck. Um, when I'm feeling stressed out or overwhelmed, I take this truck out. It's a four-speed. I get it up to the quick speed of 55 before it starts to just shake and you feel like you're getting the death wobble. And I just have the biggest smile on my face. Uh, yesterday, I took it out for a drive to Solving. I do what every person does. I pulled out my phone, and I was like, what's the weather like today? Because I've heard it's supposed to rain. Pulled out my phone, no rain in sight. I was like, awesome. I'm going to take the truck out. Uh, if you notice, there's no windows on the side. Um, it's not because they're down. It's because they actually don't exist. They're, if you open and close the door, you'll hear all the glass broken on the inside. So there is no windows. I get over the hill right by the golf course, and it begins to, not just like I'm driving through fog, it's, it's actually raining. Um, and at this point, I have a question. I go, I've always wondered if the windshield is actually sealed or if it leaks, because uh, it's infamous on these trucks. As I'm driving no longer than 30 seconds in, just dripping on my foot from the windshield. I was like, well, there, that answers my question. The windshield does not seal. So I proceed to drive anyone who's ever driven cars without floors or anything like that. If you know, you know. If you don't, that sounds crazy. Um, my feet are tucked way off to the right-hand side because it's spitting up through the hole in my floor and it's dripping on my feet, so I just have everything tucked over. This truck exudes, like, I cannot climb in this thing without hope. I have to have hope when I climb into this truck. Um, if you drive an old car or you like anything old, uh, you know, like, they take work. You're going to have problems. Um, so when I climb into this truck, I hope, man, let's not break down today. I start it up, it starts, and I go, it's going to be a good day, man. Good day. I hope as I'm driving it, something does not break. It's only broken down three times in six months, all of which I've either been able to fix or push to my house. Me and Mason, uh, one of my best friends, we actually had to push it four blocks one time because I was like, dude, I'm not wasting a toe in Lompoc when I drive this thing everywhere. So we got out and we just pushed it four blocks. I hope that this thing does not break down every time I drive it. Uh, it will. So my next hope is when it breaks down, man, I hope this is something... I can just pull off into a gas station, go grab some tools, and fix it. I hope it's something that I can fix moderately quickly, because more than likely, I'm on my way to campus. That was one time it broke down, and I'm frantically making phone calls like, I'm not making it, dude. Someone come pick the pizza up. I hope I can fix it. Now, when I can't fix it, my hope is, is that I can at least get it to my house. Um, as you're working on cars, anyone who knows, like, I have scars all over my knuckles from wrenches and it falling off and slipping. It's inevitable to happen. Uh, my hope is, while I'm doing this, that my wrench doesn't slip and I get bloody knuckles and a new scar to show my wife. Uh, but again, it's going to happen. So my next hope is, when I pinch my finger or slip the wrench, I hope there is no one within earshot to hear what is about to come out of my mouth <laughs> at this truck, right? I live off of hope with this truck. But it's interesting because hope finds all of us the same. We all experience hope and despair every day. There's some people that love newer cars, and they hope that the dealership gets the exact car that they want with the color, the engine, the interior. And then there's another person that just hopes they're able to make their car payment or put gas in their car. One person hopes that when the new iPhone comes out, it has something that is fixed that I don't understand, but people seem to get stoked on it. Some people hope that the new iPhone is better than the last, and then the next person's like, I just hope I can pay my phone bill. Hope and despair finds every single person the same. Within hope, we live in what I call the paradox of hope. There is a tension that we are always feeling when we hope. 
You read it in this psalm. You can hear the tension that is going on in this guy's heart, man. There is like, he's like torn of God. What are you doing? And then it's like, what are you doing? Like hoping God. Like there's this tearing that's going on inside of him. There is hopes of expectation and hopes of desperation. And to better explain this, I want us to go to a story. It's in Joshua. What happens is this is uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. This is right after Moses has died. They enter into the promised land of Canaan, which God promised all the way back from Abram in Genesis. And Joshua is now in command of the Israelites. And what he does is he sends two spies into the land of Canaan. Yet again, this is the second time that this has happened. He sends two spies and he tells them, I want you to check out the land of Canaan, but especially the city of Jericho. Go into the land of Canaan and look at it, but really take a look at the city of Jericho. I want you to cue into that word city of Jericho. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But as they get to this city of Jericho, they find a woman in her house who her name is Rahab. Uh, For those of you who are unfamiliar with Rahab, she is actually a prostitute, the scriptures tell us, in the city of Jericho. And she says something so profound, so interesting that so often we can glance over. This comes from Joshua chapter 2. It says, before the men laid down, which is where she hid them on the roof of her house, she said to them, verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. I know that the Lord has given you this land. Rahab's faith is off the charts. Um, How she got that, I have no clue. This is like the first time we ever really see Rahab in the scriptures is in this story. And she is hiding two spies of Israel in her city in Jericho. And she says, I know that the Lord has already given you this land. See, Rahab has a faith that produces an assurance. She is assured that this is going to take place. There is no one that can tell her otherwise. She knows without a doubt as she looks at these two spies, she says, I already know what's coming. You will take my land, the land that I live. You will seize the city. I know that the Lord has already delivered this to you. And see, she has an assurance, as we learn in Hebrews, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. She has an assurance and a hope that no one can take away. Her hope is what I would call a hope of expectation. She has an expectant hope. Her hope is not whimsical. It's not easily swayed. She has a hope of this is what I know is going to happen. But there's another side to this story. There's more people involved than just Rahab. There's the people of Israel. Now, if you're unfamiliar, the people of Israel up to this point have not had the best track record. Um, They were in slavery in Egypt for 40 years, of which Moses left, and then he came back, freed the people from Israel. Uh, There's an interesting story where Moses actually goes up onto Mount Sinai, meets with the presence of the Lord, and during that time is what we get the the two stone tablets from the Lord of the Ten Commandments. And as he's up there meeting, 40 days, okay, keep in mind, he's there up 40 days. Um, During that time, the people of Israel do something very interesting. Uh, In Exodus 32, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron, the priest, and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, The man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Forty days, somewhere in there, they just up and go, 
whoever Moses is, dude, like, we don't know. Make us a different God so that we can worship. And Moses comes down the mountain so furious, he throws the stone tablets. This is a man after my own heart. Throws the stone tablets at the people and breaks them. These are the people of Israel, which are going into the promised land of Canaan. And now the Lord meets with Joshua and tells him, I have given Jericho into your hand, 6 verses 2. And with its kings and mighty men of valor, I, I will give you this land. This land is yours to take possession of. Now I want you to picture yourself, a mighty man in the army of Israel. You have seen battle. You have seen war. You know the costs and the hardships of battle. And you come up to the city of Jericho. Now, remember, the people up until Israel in this point have lived in tents in the wilderness for 40 years. How many of you have ever gone tent camping before? Some people love it. Some people hate it. Most people that hate it, I'll tell you right now, you can't even protect yourself a raccoon. A raccoon comes to your tent, and it's like, well, it's yours now. Take it. Like, what am I going to do? How do I get you to go away? I don't know. I feed you, but then you come back. Most people don't like tent camping for that reason. You have zero protection in a tent. Tent is the worst possible thing. I'd rather sleep outside. The people of Israel for 40 years have lived in tents in the wilderness. And as a mighty man of war, you come upon the city of Jericho. And you see walls built. You see windows in those walls. You see perches where archers can take you out if you come at it. You see Gates that are able to be shut up to where no one is able to get access into the city. And that is what these men see as they come up. Many of us know the story. What Joshua does is the Lord makes him privy to, we're going to walk around the city once a day. And on the seventh day, we'll walk around it seven times. And then we'll shout. And then the walls will come tumbling down. Joshua understands the plan and knows the plan. This is what he tells the people of Israel. Keep in mind, this is probably about one to two million worth of people in which Joshua is leading. This is what he tells them. You shall not shout. You shall not make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day that I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he outlines what they're going to do. We're going to walk around the city. Now, if you're a warrior, this makes total sense. I want to get a full scope of the city in which we are about to take over. I want to see if the other side is weaker than this side. I want to see if there is a point of weakness or entry that we can take and siege there. This makes total sense. But what Joshua tells them is, as we do this, we are going to walk in complete silence. No one make a noise. No one shout. No one say anything. If anyone's ever seen Braveheart, you know this is the exact opposite of what most battle scenes are. It's most of the time just yelling and shouting and noise. And here are the people of Israel marching around the city the first day. In dead silence. Not a noise from the people of Israel but footsteps. And no doubt the mighty men, the warriors, look at the city and go, I don't know what we're going to do. And they can't even talk to each other. They can't be like, hey, do you see that? No, no, no words. Don't let a single noise leave your mouth. All the while, I can sh I'm sure they're thinking, okay, Joshua has to see something. Joshua's got a plan. Joshua knows what's going on. Maybe he sees a point of entry. So they march back to camp the first day. They go to sleep. They wake up the second day, not a noise, and they begin walking around the city. Now, at this point, maybe the warriors are thinking, well, Joshua maybe saw something, and now we're going to take a secondary look at it. Maybe, maybe we're exploring it a little bit more. So they get back to camp. They fall asleep. They wake up the third day, and they begin walking around the city in silence. 
For six days, they just march around the city, not making a sound. The people of Israel have proved over and over again that their hope is a hope of desperation. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced a hope of desperation, but you've left yourself no, no other options. It's almost like you did this to yourself, and man, all I can do is hope because that's all I have. They're so desperate for God to come through. They don't know what is going on. Their hope is a true hope of desperation. But so quickly, as we think about the Israelites marching around the city of Jericho, we lose sight of one of the most important characters in this story that gives me so much hope. It's the prostitute who they visited to spy out the city. There's a verse in Joshua chapter 2, which is so easily missed, you can very quickly just skim over it and go, well, that's a weird fact to know. Um, so often, that's how the scripture says, when you think, like, that's kind of weird, that probably is important, you should cue into it and read it. Joshua chapter 2, verses 15, this is what the author tells us. Then she let them down by a rope through her window. For her house was built into the wall so that she lived in the wall. While we have the people of Israel marching around the city of Jericho, we have a prostitute in her house watching everything. She is witnessing the silence and stoicness of the people of Israel just marching around the city for seven days. Now, based off of Rahab's previous hope, my bet is when she saw the people of Israel come, it was like, oh, they're here. Like, it's today the day. It's today the day that the Lord is going to give them this land. Remember, this is her home. This is her livelihood. This is everything. And she's expectant. She has a full assurance that the Lord is going to deliver this land into the people of Israel. And as she watches them pass by, no doubt she's hanging her head out of her window, watching as she loses sight of them with no noise. The city shut in, and the second day rolls around. and She sees the people of Israel begin to walk around the city. And she goes, oh, is, is today the day? Is today the day where I'm going to see the Lord do something great and amazing, which I already know he's going to do? For seven days, this is what happens. Before the miraculous miracle of the walls tumbling down. When I read these two people, when I understand the paradox, the tearing, the turmoil, the tension that happens between hope and despair, I see two different people, one with a hope of expectation and one with a hope of desperation. And I go, Lord, I want to be someone that is expectant with my hope. I don't want it to be a hope of desperation. I want to be expectant and assured of that hope. And therefore I go, how do I have a hope that perseveres? We've talked about the paradox of hope, but the next point is the perseverance of hope. The people of Israel could not persevere for 40 days with Moses being on the mountain before they built a golden calf to worship it. And yet Rahab is a prostitute in a pagan city and knows that the Lord is going to deliver this land. It does not tell us the time frame, but she is expectant the whole time. Psalm 42 why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. When I read that, I, I notice something. The psalmist is talking to himself. I don't know if anyone else talks to themselves. I talk to myself. Like, when I really need to, I'll talk to myself. Sometimes it's audibly. Um, sometimes I'll even have people around me that's like, are you talking to yourself or are you asking me a question? I'm like, no, I'm processing out loud. 
Uh, I, I'm talking to myself. So often, I'm not very nice to myself when I talk. I don't know about you. Uh, I either start to place the blame on someone else because I'm defensive, or I just become the worst possible human being in existence, and I'm like, man, I'm so filthy, rotten, disgusting. What the heck were you thinking, man, you moron? I start getting super down on myself. But the psalmist does something so interesting here that I love. He, he recognizes the problems that he's facing. He even recognizes the frustrations that he has with the Lord. But he comes to this place where he says, Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you at turmoil in me? Hope in God. See, what's going on here is his faith is reasoning with his fears and his hope is arguing with his sorrows. We don't allow this to take place oftentimes. We need to understand that our faith is going to reason with our fears and our hope is going to argue with our sorrows. This is a tension that we have to accept. But who are we going to be voting for that wins the battle? We should be hoping that our faith is going to outdo our, re our fears and our hope is going to win the battle over our sorrows. So I would challenge you, if you're finding that your hope is not persevering, if despair is coming at every corner for something so small, I get sometimes where every single thing I just almost turn into a child and I throw a fit and I'm like, what the heck, man? Like, life just sucks. Like, I'm done. My hope is not able to persevere any distance at all. And I would say, if that is you today, it's okay. But we need to step back and we need to recognize who is it that our hope is in? Or do we have our hope in something that is not able to hold it or contain it or carry it. Who is it that your hope is in? God is unchanging. Therefore, his grace is the ground for unshaken hope. If you find that your hope is being shaken too easily, too quickly, too often, Pastor Bernie is going to help us understand how it is that we able ha we're able to have a perseverance in our hope. Thank you. Good job, baby. Well, we're, we're two Bible college graduates, so we had three Ps, the paradox, the perseverance of hope, and now the person of hope, the person of hope. And it's not you. You're not the person of hope, nor am I. It's Jesus Christ. He's the person of hope. You know, when Tyler was teaching us about Rahab, I thought, wow, what an unlikely candidate to have the Holy Spirit assure her of the hope that God was giving the people of Israel the land. She's a prostitute. Now, some of you may think, wow, what, what kind of candidate am I for the presence of God in my life, the hope of Christ in me? And yet, it doesn't matter what you've done, or where you've been, or how you believed in the past, or how maybe you started your journey of faith and your journey of hope, and you tripped and fell, the Lord embraces you again. It's His grace and His mercy. There's another thing about Rahab, as Tyler was teaching us, where was her home? In the wall. What was going to tumble down? The wall. And with it, her house. And she could have said, excuse me, uh, you are not going to be given the land and uh, you stupid people marching around this wall, this wall is going to stand because I live here. And she was willing to say, the walls are going to tumble down. And I'll bet if Rahab was standing here, she would say, 
my hopes in God, He'll find another place for me to live. That's called courage in the middle of hope. Courage. Courage. So, I want to take you to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Colossians 1, 27 says, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. And by the way, even though the mystery is open for us and disclosed for us and enlightened for us, it's still a pretty profound mystery how Christ could live where? In you, in me. And when He lives inside of us, He is the hope of glory. glory. Now that word glory, of course, is talking about future, talking about eternal things, but it's also talking about our tomorrows. That there's a sense of God's glory, His manifest presence in our midst. You know, Paul the Apostle says in the New Testament that Christ would indwell in us, and he says that 216 times. Wow. That Christ would be in us. John, the beloved, the brother of Jesus, mentions the presence of Christ with us 26 times. But Paul, 216 times he says, Christ is going to live inside of you. There's a lot of people that believe Christ is with us. A lot of people believe Christ goes before us. Some people believe that, and I do, that Christ goes behind us and cleans up our messes, right? Surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. Some people believe God is holding us. He's underneath us. Some believe He's above us in heaven. But I want you to get this is correct theology. Christ is in us. He lives inside us. And because of that, we, we live and we move and we have our being. As you look at other religions, those religions do not say that the founder would live inside you. Now, a lot of people follow in the Buddhist faith, they follow the teachings of Buddha. Now, some people have a physique and figure like maybe Buddha lives inside them. We won't talk about that too much. But nowhere in the doctrine of Buddha does it say Buddha will live in you. The Muslim faith, the Muslims do not believe that Muhammad lives inside of them, though they may follow the wisdom and the doctrine of Muhammad. Only Christianity says, and it's summarized by this verse, that Christ is in us. The one we believe in lives inside us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that gives us a hope that's overwhelming. The Phillips translation reads this way, Colossians 1.27. Christ in you, bringing with him the what? The hope of all glorious things to come. So when we allow Christ, in our notes, to make his presence in us known, hope rises in our hearts. When things come against you, What do you do? Some people are overwhelmed with fear. Some people moan and groan and complain and whine. None of you. None of you would do that. But the best thing to do is to recognize that Christ is in us and to pause long enough to say, Jesus, would you let your hope be alive in me? It's not a religious thing. It's a relational thing where Christ is connected deeply with me, so much so that when we look at the Christmas story, we look at a young peasant girl, another unlikely candidate. 
And the Lord said, and, and this is what the scripture declares, that she was highly favored, Mary was, among all women. And that God asked her through the angel, and let me paraphrase, can, can, can my son Jesus come to earth through you? Just think about that. Mary doesn't offer God any assistance, nor does she offer God any resistance. She just simply says, would it be done unto me according to your word? I want what you want, God. Now, some of you may find this analogy a little odd, but just bear with me. The Christ child in human form, God in the flesh, lived inside of Mary's womb, let's say for nine months. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. But at some point, the Christ child had to come out. Hmm. Again, forgive the analogy, but if Christ is in us, he's got to come out of us. In our attitude, in our approach to other people, in the fact that we have hope, not in what we see, but because of our faith in what we know, much like Rahab, God's giving you this land. And we're going to carry the Lord, as, as the Scripture says uh, in Ephesians 3.17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that Christ declared in John 14 to his disciples, they didn't fully understand it, but he said, I'm going to be in you. Wow, it's a hard saying, Lord. But he wants to be inside of all of us and live inside of all of our hearts. I love this verse in Revelation 3.20. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and what? O opens the door. Wait, 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 wait. Opens the door to where? Your heart. To give Jesus an all-access pass to your life. To say, God, just come and take over inside of me. And then he says, I will come in and many different versions read different things, but it all denotes having a meal. King James, I'll come in and sup with you. Like, what's up, right? I'm going to sup with you, uh, which is a nice word for supper. And Jesus himself paints this analogy that he's seated at a table sharing a meal with us, being intimate with us. Not, not, not being far away, not in front of us, not behind us, not over us, not beneath us, but right inside of us. And I will be with him, and he or she will be with me together. That's the heart of God. I want us to be like a Mary. Hey, Lord, be it done unto me according to your word. I want us to live with the hope of even a Rahab that says, God, I know you're going to give us the land and look outside your window and go, hmm, I see signs of that and God's doing it. You know, this week, if any of you uh, connect with our Facebook page, I, I gave a little Wednesday message like I often do. And, and this one was about Moses, where Moses, it says in the scriptures, he stepped aside and took a look at the burning bush that was on fire, but not consumed. And catch this, as he walked away from his assignment, he was a shepherd. He left his sheep just for a moment. He paused his life. He paused his livelihood just for a moment. And he looked at the bush. And the Bible says, as he looked, then God spoke to him. God didn't get his attention 
by speaking to him, God already has his attention by the miracle of the bush. I wonder where we need to step aside from our pain, from our struggle. We need to step aside from our daily life. But we need to pause just for a moment and say, God, I want to see you. I want to be like a Rahab. I want to be like a Moses. I want to be like a Mary. I want to step aside a moment, and then God will speak to us. As we have faith and put our heart in the Lord, then he will come, and we will be able to say like the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Hey, dear ones, because Jesus is alive, because he's alive in us, hope is alive no matter what. No matter what. Hope is alive. Hey, before we pray, I'd like to read 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4 to you. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us new birth into a what? Living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. In other words, God has already written the last chapter of your life. Your story's already done. It's already in concrete. If you're in Christ, then Christ has already preserved a place in heaven for you. That's done. But between now and then, there's pages yet to be written. The narrative of your life, the story of your life. Boy, it's my hope and Tyler's hope that you will live with Christ in you, the hope of glory. That you will live between those tension points of, of distress and, and disaster sometimes, but knowing I've got a hope in Christ that's greater than anything I face and anything I fear. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.